Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm your host, Jason Greenblatt. With tensions rising across the world, diplomacy is needed perhaps now more than ever. During my time as former White House Middle East envoy and as one of the chief architects of peace between Israel and its Arab neighbors, I've had the chance to witness the power of diplomacy firsthand. And today, I would like to share that perspective with you. Shalom, salam, and welcome to The Diplomat. Really excited to have Jonathan Swan from Axios here with me. You know, Jonathan, I, I've been fortunate to interview a lot of journalists, but I particularly like interviewing the journalists who I interacted with while at the White House, because if they gave me a hard time, now is my turn to give them a hard time. But truthfully, oh, I, don't, I don't remember you actually giving me a hard time. I think you guys covered our file, you know, honestly and fairly. And if we ever did have a hiccup, I know that we had good discussions. So thank you for all that. And welcome to The Diplomat. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start with a little about you. You were born, grew up in Australia. You end up not only in the United States, not only in Washington, D.C., but access to the White House. How did that happen? Well, it's what, like like a lot of people's um, stories. It sort of only makes sense when you look back at it in retrospect. It was a very... Um, you know, zigzaggy route to, um, to covering the white house. I, the only thing that sort of, I, I, I guess was maybe determinative was I grew up in a family of journalists where journalism was just infused into me from the younger stage. My dad is a great journalist in Australia. He's a uh, TV and radio broadcaster. He was a doctor before he became a, he's one of the most respected um, health and science journalists in Australia. And, and, and I, my uncle and aunt were both crime reporters. Um, my first job in a newsroom was when I was 15 years old, paid job. I was a, what was called at the time, a copy boy, which was basically just a, um, a servant um, for, for the senior journalist. And I did something that was really interesting at the time as a teenager, which was called police rounds, where I used to sit up in this room I don't even know if it's legal now I think about it, but uh, basically what they had was a bunch of scanners which tapped into police radios around Sydney and you could listen to cops talk to each other as they drove around. And it was like an early warning system. If the cops said, you know, there's a murder here or there's whatever, you could call down. I could, my job was to call down to the news desk and alert them so they could get to the scene and, and you know, get ahead of, of our competitors on the story. And I would sit in this room, no windows for eight hours at a time, just listening to cops talk and whatever. And so, you know, I did, and then I, you know, I, I did local coverage. I did crime, whatever. And I ended up in Canberra covering federal politics. And I really got the bug for covering politics. I just, it was just something that I love doing. I love trying to explain to people how decisions were made. And, you know, this government, which just seems so distant and remote, how to try and help people understand how these really consequential 
decisions were made, um, what the factors were that were considered, and sort of take them into some of these rooms behind the scenes as best as I could. Um, I was also just had an inherent interest in the United States. I'd studied American history at university. I followed American media very closely. And so when I had an opportunity in 2014 to come to the US for a year on a fellowship, I, I think in the back of my mind was, well, maybe I, I could convince uh, an American media outlet to hire me um, and maybe I might stay. I, I still had my job back at the Sydney Morning Herald to come back to. But um, anyway, I ended up convincing um, the Hill newspaper, which is a Washington, you know, at the time quite sort of small um, publication to hire me. And I covered the 2016 campaign. And that's how I sort of got to know, um, you know, former President Trump's people himself. Um, and, uh, you know, had a quite a good election cycle, broke quite a few stories. And then that sort of caught the interest of um, Jim Vanderhei and Mike Allen, who were starting this new company, which when they hired me, it didn't even have a name, but um, it's become Axios. So uh, I was one of their very first hires. Now I'm going to have to, you've tempted me, I'm going to have to go back to 2016 and read what you wrote to see whether you were on the mark, not on the mark. I mean, it was such a crazy campaign for everybody with so many candidates and so much unpredictability. So I guess I have my weekend work cut out for me. Thanks for that. Uh, I want to play a clip for a moment from the White House Correspondents Association dinner. Uh, Trevor Noah was, I guess, the MC said something very funny about you. Here's the clip. People are always asking, how does Jonathan Swan get these politicians to open up to him? I'll tell you how. It's the Australian accent. <laughs> yeah, American journalists sound too aggressive. What did you do with the money? An interview with Jonathan Swan is like being interrogated by a koala bear. <laughs> But Senator McConnell, don't you think it's strange that you and the devil have never been seen in the same place at the same time? Don't you think that's strange? So Jonathan, um, very funny. You know, Trevor's very funny. Um, I know Washington. I know New York. People would argue that both of those cities are tough, but I would say Washington is even tougher than New York in terms of breaking in. How hard was it to break in or... Was it the koala bear or the crocodile Dundee <laughs> accent that allowed you to kind of jump in and become such a well-known and respected journalist? It was a very good impression he did of me, uh, painfully uh, accurate. Um, look, I don't, I, I, I could give you some BS sort of, um, for, you know, oh, I sort of stumbled in and, you know, well, you know, I, I sort of managed, but the truth is, a very ambitious person and I work extremely hard and always have and um, try to think about um, my reporting in a very long-term way. I, I, I'm not interested in um, sort of the quick, uh, even that's funny, I think people might have a misconception maybe because, um, you know, a lot of my stuff is sort of, you know, ephemeral. That's the nature of being a journalist, but actually I think about my career in a very, very long-term way. You know, I, I want to be, it's all I ever want to do. I don't have any ambitions to be anything else. I don't want to be an editor. I don't want to manage people. I don't want to run a company. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I just want to be a reporter. And so it feels like a mission, actually. I don't want to get too sort of, um, uh, I don't know what the right word is. Um, uh, I don't want to try and make it sound um, self-righteous, but, um, 
it's it's more than a job. It's a, it's a mission, and it's something that I always want to be the best that I can, and I want to try and get to the closest approximation of the truth. And I've had some been lucky to have some very good and generous mentors who are much older than me and much better than me, much more seasoned, and they've helped me think about um, things that you don't really. I never went to journalism school, but I, I don't know that you get taught about things like restraint. And when you have the adrenaline surging through your body of, oh, I'm onto something, a great story. The, the, the next thing you need to do is slam the brakes and say, what could I have gotten wrong? Because what I've learned over time is you build a career in, in little blocks, little steps, and you can destroy all those blocks really, really quickly. Um, so I basically, um, you know, this is this is the culmination in some ways of like the last 10 years, I've just killed myself. I worked so, so hard in Australia and then here in the US, just trying to use every minute to build a new source, to try and work a new angle. Um, and I see it as a very long journey. I actually think I'm sort of, um, you know, 10% of the reporter that I want to be ultimately. Um, so that's kind of the way I, I view it. So the slam the brakes thing kind of reminds me of social media. Would that we would all, myself included, yeah. probably slam the brakes before posting Twitter, mm -hmm. whatever. So maybe Elon Musk will figure out a slam the brakes thing for uh, for Twitter, because I think uh, we should take a step back and think about the issues before we hit that submit button or post button. Yeah. And, and also, I'm not convinced that all these new technologies and tools have made us better informed or have actually uh, have actually represented progress, frankly. Um, I think in many ways we've become addicted to as news consumers. Um, we were, there was always an element of this. So I don't want to um, glamorize, you know, create a false glamorous impression of what journalism was 40, 50 years ago. I could, give you, I mean, there's always huge problems with um, journalism, but what, what this technology has done is it's sped everything up and it's created an environment where everything is kind of flattened. The nice thing about the newspaper, which I still love, I still love print newspapers, is it gives you proportion. It, there's someone there saying, this is the most important thing. You could disagree with their decisions, but there's some judgment about here's the most important thing. Here's, social media flattens everything and everything's just coming at you at this relentless speed. Some stuff gets becomes viral because someone's written it in a way that's designed to provoke outrage or appeal to your preconceptions or prejudices. And it just creates this, you know, you come in there and you're just assaulted by information. This It's very hard to actually figure out, well, what's important, what's not important, what's true, what's false. Um, and so I actually spend these days very little time on social media. I'm very, I, I still go on because it, it's a useful platform. I, you know, I've got close to a million followers on Twitter, so it's a good way of distributing um, my work, but I'm pretty, I really don't go on very much anymore because I don't get much out of it. I find it to be a really um, pretty horrible way to consume information. And I think it's done things to our brains that, um, that we probably don't really understand yet. It's going to take actually quite a few years to really figure out how we've, we've altered our, um, you know, maybe even, <clears throat> 
not not just our society, but our own internal kind of chemistry and biology from all the time we've spent on these technologies. Yeah, talk about evolution, but probably not a very good evolution, right? Devolution. Devolution. <laughs> so uh, we're going to take a break for a moment. When we come back, we're going to discuss with Jonathan Swan. We're going to take the journalism part and the politics part and wrap them together in our next question. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Jonathan, in August 2020, you interviewed President Donald Trump. I want to play a clip from the interview. Mr. President, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. We appreciate you taking the time. Good. And we appreciate your commitment to answer our questions. Sure. Really appreciate that. So from that sort of nice start, the interview took some twists and turns, and that's me being very diplomatic. How hard is it for a journalist to conduct interviews with leaders, and in particular at a sensitive time, at a controversial time, over controversial topics that are still unfolding, where there's likely disagreement between the person being interviewed and the journalist. Can you describe the tension between journalists and the people who are being interviewed and how you try to overcome that? Yeah. And that tension. So firstly, it's really hard, really, really hard. And um, I don't know, I can't speak for other interviewers, but I put an inordinate amount of time into preparing for my interviews, particularly when it's with the head of state. Um, I've interviewed a few heads of state and uh, they're all different. Um, they've all gotten there for different uh, reasons, but at the core, they've gotten there because they're good communicators and they wait, they're often very skilled at um, working the media um, and frankly doing ways of like president Trump's a great example. Um, it, the way I described to someone, it's like riding a Bronco, you know, you, you, he, like you're trying to kind of steer it in one way he's going up. So it, it, it's this, it's this, um, really challenging exercise and, um, you know, there's a sense it's kind it can be a little bit intimidating as well. Obviously they're the most powerful, he's the most powerful person in the world. Um, you know, that a camera is recording your, everything and people are going to interpret it in different ways, particularly in such a polarized country, you become an avatar for all these, you know, people's, you know, um, animosities and, um, hopes and, and whatever this was in the middle of an election year. So it was a very, very challenging interview. Um, and in terms of the tension, that's always going to exist. It should exist. Um, it's healthy. Um, if, if you don't have that tension, you have 
Russia. You have state-controlled media, which is or, or North Korea, which is compliant and basically an extension of the government. Um, the but 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 with the privileges that we have in this country. Um, of the First Amendment and and free speech come responsibilities. And again, and this is where, like, I I am always open to criticism and I do listen to it, uh, you know, no matter what my interview is or story or whatever, because I I, I am conscious of um, the responsibilities I have as a journalist and not wanting, wanting to educate rather than inflame and to try to cut through and help people see um, where things are, are at rather than uh, just create a whole lot of heat and, 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 um, and sensationalism. At the, uh, uh, at the same time, the, the overriding thing I think about when I'm in the chair interviewing a powerful person is what would the person, if, if I can put myself in the mind of a citizen in this country, what would they want to ask? And what does this person need to be held accountable on? It's a serious interview. It's not, um, you can do, there's different types of interviews. There are, you know, celebrity interviews, softer interviews where you, you're really trying to um, introduce a person to the world, more biographical interviews. But if you're interviewing a head of state or someone with real political power, I think it's an accountability interview by definition. Uh, or it or it ought to be, um, because they've been introduced to the public many many times. So that's the mindset I take, whether it's President Trump or you know Prime Minister Imran Khan or you know um, Volodymyr Zelensky or uh, the President of Iraq when I was in Baghdad. And like you know, I'm thinking about it. This is a this is a, a powerful person who um, you know who has the ability to shape events. And my job as a journalist in that room is to is to perform an exercise in accountability to the best of my ability. So I didn't go to journalism school either, but I have been on both sides of the mic now interviewing you and others in the White House and continuing to today being the interviewee. I think your words educate rather than inflame ought to be handed out to both sides of those on the microphones before every single interview. That's a really important point. And I hope they teach that in journalism school. When are we going to see your interview of President Biden? We'd have to ask him because we've been trying since I've been trying anyway, uh, since 2019. Um, so I would, there's no interview I would rather have right now than President Biden. Uh, the second on the list would be um, Vice President Harris. Um, and I don't know um, whether it will ever happen. I, I sincerely hope it does. Um Obviously, one of the challenges is you can't force someone to <laughs> to do an interview with you. And it's not like the old days. One of the problems with television interviewing these days is from my perspective, I'm just talking about from the journalist's perspective, it's, it's great for the politicians. There's no convening power. There's no, um, there's no leverage that you have as journalists. Like in the old days, there was only a few networks. They had, they needed you and so they needed to submit or to come on the shows, even when they knew they were likely to face tough questions. There was a convening power that these um, anchors had. And that's why they were such powerful figures, because they had huge audiences. There wasn't much competition and all these leaders needed to go on. As media has become more and more diffuse, 
these politicians have a menu of choices. They don't need any. There's no single anchor who commands that kind of um, authority anymore. And so if you're a politician, you can pick and choose. Um, you can say, well, I'd rather go on a friendly show. I'd rather be with someone who I know is a friendly, um, who I can have a sort of, you know, the interview equivalent of a warm bath with. Um, and um, and there's no, there's nothing I can say that, I mean, I can make arguments for why they ought to do an interview, but there's nothing if you're going to be really honest about it, that that really carries the leverage that someone would have had even, even 15, 20 years ago, it was, it was fracturing then, but Tim Russett had a different level of convening power on meet the press than Chuck Todd does today. Um, you saw, um, you know, you would have, he would give the whole hour over to interviewing, you know, vice president Cheney or the president or, you know, the, the, the level of guests that he could get on that show were astonishing um, from both parties. And that was sort of the last gasp of an era where that was possible. And it's becoming less and less possible these days. So um, I'm hopeful. I, I would love to do a, a serious long form interview with president Biden. Um, there's no interview I'd rather have, but um, you know, they haven't agreed to it. Well, White House Communications Office, if you're listening, I encourage you to invite Jonathan in. And if you don't want to take Jonathan, I'm happy to bring the diplomat to the White House and interview you too. We're going to take a break for a moment. When we come back, we're going to talk about world events and domestic policy in the United States. Jonathan, you interviewed President Zelensky twice in the past year, including one in Kiev a year ago now. And at the time, I'm not sure what they were thinking about the threat of Russia. Tell us what you think is going on and what you think they thought then and what the missteps were. Well, uh, just I think it's important for people to understand the Ukrainian perspective, whether, whether you agree with it or not. I, when I went there, I went to Kiev in late January of 2021 and interviewed President Zelensky, I spent a bit of time with him, interviewed him again in the spring. They were, there was a sense of urgency that he was trying to convey. The reason he talked to me twice last year, I don't think it's a great mystery. He wasn't actually getting great access to the Biden administration and he was trying to convey messages through the media. Um, he was in a state of uh, panic would be maybe too strong a word, but something close to it. And remember, he came into office inheriting a country that had already been invaded, that Russia was in his country. They invaded in 2014 during the Obama administration. And he was really, really worried that they were going to do further incursions. He was trying to get the US to pay attention to this problem. The Biden administration wanted to pivot away from, basically they wanted Russia to just you know, not to have to think about Russia. They were trying to, what they were talking about was, um, they didn't use the word reset, but it was stabilizing the relationship, lowering the temperature. They basically wanted to park Russia and turn towards China to spend all their um, energy thinking about China. Um, obviously, events have pulled them back. The other thing that Zelensky was doing in the interview with me, particularly in the second interview, was he was very critical of President Biden for waiving sanctions on Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He was saying this is a terrible, terrible decision um, to, to effectively greenlight the completion of Russia's pipeline. 
um, which bypassed Ukraine. It, it really cut off Ukraine, cut off money and leverage from Ukraine, went straight to Germany. It was Putin's geopolitical goal. And the Germans were facilitating that with what ended up being the tacit um, support would be too strong a word, but basically allowance from the Americans. Um, so he was really exercised about that. And then the other thing that he was fed up with, and, and you could just feel it, it was so galling to them, was um, they'd been promised NATO membership back in 2008. People forget this. Um, they were promised NATO membership. That's all he wanted. He wanted NATO membership. So, you know, it's a huge, you can disagree with whether it be strategically wise to give it, but he was promised it. They pro NATO promised Ukraine membership. Um, and what they got in the next 10, 12 years was a series of BS excuses, basically. Everyone knew the real reason that they weren't being given a membership um, plan and allowed in was because they didn't want to provoke the US, the Germans, the French didn't want to provoke Russia. And that's that's a perfectly fine strategic judgment. But it wasn't what they said to the Ukrainians. It was, you know, you need to clean up your corruption and you need to modernize your military. And I mean, I don't think people realize how galling that sounds to Ukrainian ears when they see countries like North Macedonia and Montenegro, you know, the mighty militaries of Montenegro and North, you know, allowed into NATO. It's just laughable. And so they basically the US, the Germans, the French put the Ukrainians in the worst possible position. They hung out this false hope, which was never really going to be um, realized. And and so they were sort of left hanging, wanting to be part of the West, but but not. And I still, you know, think back to those conversations with Zelensky and the urgency with which he was trying to convey messages to Biden. And at that time, anyway, it was really falling on a pretty deaf ears. Um, it, it took a while for them to really focus on this problem. So we have midterms coming up end of the year. What's your take on how ugly or not ugly it's going to be? To me, it seems, of course, all midterms are important, but it seems to be a particularly tense and critical juncture for our country right now. Yeah. I, I, look, from the Democrats' perspective, um, the reason you see the desperation that you see right now is there is a there is a consensus view across the party that they're going to lose the House of Representatives and perhaps perhaps the Senate. And so in some of their minds anyway, that I took Democrats that I talked to, there's almost a, a feeling of this may be our last chance to get all these things done that we want, like a huge voting bill, voting rights bill, um, action on climate change, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they list, some of them listen to strategists in the party like David Shaw um, who argue that unless Democrats um, pass a voting rights bill right now and get rid of um, partisan redistricting, unless they give statehood to Puerto Rico and D.C., that their structural disadvantages could lock them out of power for a decade or longer. So there's a real existential panic within the party, and that's what you're seeing here. But underneath that, are some pretty profound tensions in the party. And you're already seeing kind of um, a pre-blame game going on. You're seeing progressives preemptively blaming the moderates, saying if only you had passed 
you know, a $3.5 trillion build back better plan. If only Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema had have, you know, done all the things that we promised, then we would be in a better position to hold the house. And then you have the moderates saying, you guys are crazy. Um, we already have too much spending. We already have too much debt. We already have a huge inflation problem. And part of the reason we're in the pickle we're in right now is because of you progressives. Uh, it's your fault. And so I think you, if things continue to play out the way they're playing, um, obviously there's like a few asterisks, you know, politics change and, and we're several months out and you can't be certain that environments can't change. But right now it's the best political environment for Republicans since 2010 uh, on any measure, presidential approval, generic ballot, the issue set, you know, inflation. Um, so if things hold the way they are, I think where things are heading right now is um, is after the election, um, if, if the predictions hold, you're going to have a really ugly feud within the Democratic Party. Recriminations. Um, kind, I, I hate using the word civil war. It's just a hack cliche. But kind of the, the fight that has been deferred and delayed because the party has been united in despising Donald Trump. And that's been the glue that's kind of held them together. But underneath that are some real tensions um, that haven't been dealt with effectively. And I think um, a really punishing loss would force some of that out into the open. What do you think the top three things are that are worrying Americans today? Well, the, the um, polling shows overwhelmingly it's cost of living, it's inflation. And, and that is, I mean, when you talk to people in the Biden White House, Finally, I mean, they, they, you know, a year ago, I remember talking to them, oh, it's transitory. Larry Summers is wrong, blah, blah, blah. Well, turns out they were wrong. Um, so cost of living inflation. And I think um, a lot of people who are comfortable um, and look, myself included, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, struggling to meet my um, payments each week, but, um, but I know a lot of people who are and, I don't think people, a lot of people um, in this sort of uh, wealthiest part of our society just understand how terrifying inflation can be when you have a, a fixed income and you're just struggling to get by and you're seeing costs just rise and rise around you. It's almost like the water's rising up and up and up. Yeah. It, it's terrifying. It's not under control. And and that is a phenomenon that the, the president's team is is now acutely, acutely aware of and thinking about because it, you know, you can't spin away inflation. You can spin away a lot of things. You can, you know, tell voters, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you can't say to them, don't believe your lying eyes at the grocery store or the gas pump. Um, it's something that gets reinforced every day in, in voters lived experience. So, that by far is the most dangerous issue um, for the administration. And and I'm not sure much comes close, frankly, um, as far as I can tell. Jonathan, your, your job allows you to intersect politics and journalism. What do you say to young people today who want to go into government or journalism? What's your sort of top advice to them? Because it's not, neither job is easy. Mm. Both are essential. How would you yeah. guide them? Well, um, I have less useful advice on the government side um, because I've never worked in government. So I'd be curious to hear your advice on that. But um, on the journalism side, 
Um, I would think about firstly, before you do, because you're right, it's very hard and it's actually an inherently unstable career choice. Uh, it's an industry that's had, that's gone through immense upheaval um, in the last 20 years. You've seen the destruction of whole newsrooms across um, not just this country, but around the world, um, the destruction of a business model that had served the industry very well for a long time. I think we're coming, I don't want to attempt fate, but I think we're coming out of that phase now and, and there are some more viable models. Um, there's still a huge problem with local news, which hasn't been solved, but we are seeing some success in subscription models and, and others. But generally speaking, two things. Number one, thinking carefully about why do I want to be a journalist? Because it's more than, again, it's not just a paycheck uh, because if you're doing it for money, pick another career, seriously. Like you're not going to get rich being a journalist unless you're in this tiny group of people who, you know, get an anchor job on TV. Um, why do I want to be a journalist? Who are the journalists I admire? Thinking about who's, who's someone I can try and emulate their career. Who's someone who I read their work or I watch them. And I think that's, that's really something and, and sort of studying what was their career path. Um, that's one thing to think about. Another thing to think about is just a very practical advice is subject matter expertise. Um, there is such demand. There's always going to be demand for journalists who understand the federal reserve or um, really deeply versed in healthcare policy. Um, there's, there's less demand and more instability when you are a generalist um, like myself. Um, so, you know, or, or um, you know, someone who likes to write features or, or whatever, if you're an exceptional writer, then, you know, you'll probably always have a job, but I know some exceptional writers who have very unstable working um, situation. So subject matter expertise is becoming more and more important because um, that's what people are willing to pay for. It's just a very pra practical um, piece of advice. So if you can have a background in, you know, if there's something you're passionate about, you know, if it, whether it's economics or healthcare or whatever, go deep on it, go really deep and build expertise and write about that because um, that's going to always make you valuable to editors um, around the place. Um, and also just seek out people, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've tried to pass it on a little bit, but um, you know, mentors are really important. I find them very important. I'm, there's a woman back in Australia who is one of the great journalists in Australia and that's Pam Williams. Um, she, in the last 30 years, in my view, she's just really in a class of her own in terms of investigative political reporting, the amount of hours she's given to me over the last decade in just helping me think through stuff and really being just a guide on the side, I'll never be able to repay that, but hopefully I can pass little bits and pieces of it on to the younger people, but seeking out people who you admire, who you want to learn from. Um, most people are more generous than you realize. And, and that would be another piece of um, advice that I would give. And just the last thing I would say is don't feel um, that there's a lot of pressure to become um, the, next Jonathan, the next Jonathan Swan. No, no, forget that. Forget <laughs> that. You don't want to be that. No, there's a lot of pressure to be a personality. And again, just, I, I really do believe, and maybe it's a naive thing to believe, but that if you do the work and you have patience and long-term, but ultimately you'll be in a better position if you act with restraint and you just are thoughtful about each thing you do 
and don't take the cheap, quick candy that's always on offer uh, to get famous and to, you know, create a moment or whatever. Um, you might get lots of retweets, but you're also at the same time in a quieter way that may not be visible, destroying future authority and credibility when you um, when you do something that's thoughtless or stupid or, you know, attention-seeking. Jonathan Swan, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing your experience, your life story, politics, journalism, advice. Really appreciate you coming on The Diplomat. Thanks for having me, Jason. What a great interview with Jonathan Swan of Axios. Covered a lot of ground. His transition from Australia to the United States, politics, world events, journalism, advice to young journalists, what it's like being a journalist, so much more. Hope you enjoyed it. Do remember to share this and all the other podcasts. Many of them are still very relevant with your friends, family, and colleagues. Follow me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. And my book will be coming out in June or July. Please do remember to order it, to pre-order it, I should say, on Amazon. Search my name or search In the Path of Abraham on Amazon. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.